Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 18. I am so excited this week. You will hear me geek out on you quite a bit. Uh, One of my all-time favorite drummers joins us today, Rod Morgenstein from the Dixie Dregs, Winger, uh, the Rude S. Morgenstein Project, Jazz is Dead, and a professor of percussion at Berkeley College of Music. You're not going to want to miss this interview, so please stay tuned. Lost Cabos drumsticks may be the best-kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos drumsticks. All right, guys, as I mentioned, uh, one of my all time favorite drummers, Rod Morgenstein, uh, is joining us today. This is uh, probably one of the greatest honors of my life. Anybody that knows me knows a couple of things. Uh, You know, I have a list of favorite drummers, John Bonham, Tommy Lee, uh, and in that top three, you have to mention Rod Morgenstein. I was such a fan of Rod uh, growing up. Um, You know, I, I played his signature drumsticks when I was a kid. I owned his signature snare drum when I was a kid. Uh, Rod has been such an influence on me as a player. I was so excited when he agreed to be on the show. Uh, He's just done so many incredible things over his career. If you're not familiar with the Dixie Drags, uh, they just finished a tour with their classic original lineup. Um, Go out and buy the record Freefall. It is just a wonderful fusion record. Um, Steve Morse, obviously, uh, and Rod kind of founded that band back in the mid 70s. And we talk all about that, but just such a hugely influential album uh, to me as a drummer. And of course, I was a huge winger fan as well. Um, Just, you know, in that genre of music, they were different than everybody else. Uh, So, Uh, Enough of me talking. Let's get right to our guest today. Please help me welcome the incredible Rod Morgenstein to the drum shuffle. Good evening, Rod. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for taking time and coming on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate it. It's a great honor for me. Uh, wonderful to be here. It's my pleasure. Well, we we really do appreciate it. Um, Rod, what we typically like to do on the drum shuffle, um, start us out at the very beginning. How did you uh, become a drummer? How did you get into music? Where did you grow up? All that good stuff. I grew up on Long Island, um, about an hour from New York City. Uh, it was February 1964, and like most families in America on that particular Sunday night. Uh, The Beatles were performing for the first time on the Ed Sullivan Show, and uh, my sister and my parents and I were just gathered around the the TV and watched the Beatles, uh, you know, perform. I forget if it was maybe uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand or She Loves You, and um, it was in that moment. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew my mission in life. It was basically that uh, succinct and simple. 
Well, that's, you know, I mean, so many guys of, of that generation, that was like, you know, the seminal moment, you know, and, and everything, it was just such a, a moment in history. It was everything before the Beatles and then, and then life after the Beatles. Um, so were you immediately just, I'm going to be a drummer once you saw Ringo? Yeah, for whatever reason, he was uh, the member of the band um, that I identified with uh, as far as the instrument that I wanted to play. And, um, you know, so my parents saw my interest, and um, pretty shortly thereafter, they bought me a bass drum, snare drum, and a cymbal. And, you know, we're going back, you know, Sure. To, the, to the mid 1960s, when uh, uh, you know we didn't have all of the different drum innovations uh, that we've had in the last 30 some odd years, so um, uh, drum sets were pretty much all the same. And uh, I remember uh, my dad took me to Manny's Music in New York City, and uh, we got me a Ludwig bass drum and snare drum because Ringo was playing a Ludwig drum set. You know, that's kind of how it works. You want to play um, what the musicians who you're into of course. are playing. For some reason, you think it's going to make you a better player. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was a black lacquer 12 by 20 bass drum and a 5 by 14 snare. And the bass drum had like a telescoping or telescoping uh, rod that a 10-inch symbol stood on right sure. in the center of it. So it was very funny looking. And that was the drum set. And so they thought they'd start me out just, you know, with, with those pieces and uh, would see if in a few weeks I lost interest in it or, um, I, you know, I wanted to continue. And so, uh, you know, when they saw my interest not waning, then uh, the next piece of gear was a hi-hat and then after that a ride cymbal and then a rack tom and then a floor tom and somewhere in that period probably you know within a year's time um i was hooked up with a private drum set teacher a wonderful big band drummer by the name of howie mann spelled m-a-n-n who was teaching in the next town over from uh where we were living and um he had had a nice career as a big band drummer and uh, had settled down you know, on Long Island and was uh, teaching privately. So Howie uh, sort of put me on a regimen of uh, you know, the basics from learning the rudiments and learning to read and uh, doing snare drum pieces. And then on the drum set, um, uh, kind of getting me immediately involved in chart reading and playing along to Woody Herman records and Count Basie records. Sure. So, um, so you, so, kind of, you kind of grew up in the jazz tradition then, I mean, taking lessons from a big, big band guy, right? Yeah. I mean, my, you know, being a typical American kid and again, you know, um, being inspired by the Beatles, um, uh, my interests were more in rock, but how he got me into seeing that there were other kinds of music. Plus, I grew up in a family that always had music playing in the house, you know, Broadway albums, classical music. Um, my parents, you know, wanted to have a little culture, um, you know, put on their children sure. so that we didn't just grow up uh, only into, you know, what pop culture was sort of uh, defining things as. So, um, so there's a lot of different things going on. So, uh, actually enjoyed playing along with all the big band recordings and you know it kind of uh i think helped put me on the path of um becoming a, a versatile kind of musician or at least a musician recognizing that versatility um is an important factor in being a musician one just uh in terms of uh, making life maybe a little bit easier in terms of getting work later down the road. But also, uh, I came to realize that um, 
you know, the more styles of music that I was um, familiar with or had a little bit of an understanding of, I found that uh, consciously and unconsciously elements from those different ways of playing uh, could be used in my whatever playing that I was doing. So uh, like a perfect example of that is when uh, Winger was recording its first album, and there really wasn't a band yet. I was actually hired to play drums on that first album. And uh, so the reason that they were interested in a drummer like me was uh, to try to utilize some of um, my abilities in the fusion area of drumming to bring it to this heavy metal format. And so, um, you know, in, in Kip Winger's mind, maybe having the drums do things that are, you know, way off course uh, than a, say, a, a schooled rock drummer would play, it could be one element to make Winger stand out or not sound totally like Kiss or Bon Jovi or Def Leppard. So when we did that first record and we were doing the song 17, after the guitar solo, uh, there's a very cool guitar riff that's played for like four measures. And um, they said to me, okay, in two of those measures or the four measures, can you do something that rock drummers don't know how to do or do something that you'd never hear on a record by a rock band. So I said, oh, yeah, let me, let me think about this. And then I decided to, um, you know, turn the beat around, basically uh, displace it by an eighth note. So, um, you know, imagine taking the beat, um, pa, um, um, pa, but instead of playing the bass drum on one and the snare on two, you would play, you would wait and then play the bass drum on the end of one and then the snare on the end of two. So, <clears throat> you're displacing the entire beat and um, for someone who doesn't know it's coming it's very disorienting they feel that the bottom is dropping out uh, they feel that the music is turning upside down um, which is basically the effect that you want your listener to have sure. you want them to know like something really weird has just happened it creates musical tension for a moment and then two bars later, it's right back to the the normal way. Right, back um, in the pocket, yeah. Back in the pocket. And so uh, what I found fascinating was when that album came out and we were on the road playing, and then, you know, fortunately all the stars lined up and, and the record started selling and all, all this good stuff. Um, on a nightly basis, when we would meet fans... Uh, there would always be those musician fans that wanted to know what was going on <laughs> in that part of the song. What time signature is that in? And I've never heard that before. And that was that was precisely the reason for doing it. Right. And so, you know, I would find myself throwing out uh, names of my contemporaries. You know, I'd rattle off like, Simon Phillips, Vinnie Caliuta, Steve Smith, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, not one drummer ever heard of any of those drummers. Well, that, no, well that's a shame. I mean, really, I mean. <laughs> but I, well, not so much a shame. Like, the, what, what was startling to me was, first of all, here I was in my mid-30s, um, in a band who were all in their mid-20s, and a lot of the mu musicians in other bands that we were touring with were also in their 20s. And so, you know, unless you were a Dixie Dregs fan or a fan of, you know, that other world of fusion music, um, none of these uh, fans of this new band Winger ever heard of me. Sure. Which I found that delightful. It was, it was so fascinating you know and so you know so not only had they not heard of me but they hadn't heard of really any of the fusion drummers because that's not anything that they were exposed to
Right. Well, and I mean, you know, I'm no different. Um, you know, I mean, I my first exposure to your playing was winger. And, you know, being, uh, you know, in my formative years as a drummer, you know, you automatically start saying, okay, well, who else has Rod Morgenstein played with? That right. that takes me back through the catalog, you know, to, to, you know, Steve Morse, the Dixie Dregs. And, you know, that was really when I started really getting into the Dregs, you know, I see. hardcore, yeah. um, you know, and. I think it's a great story if we can kind of, you know, go back to the dregs. You left New York and, and went to the University of Miami in Florida, and that's where you first met Steve, correct? Yes, but I'll, I'll go back before it. Um, when I graduated high school, I really had no inclination of where to go. You know, a lot of musicians... Uh, immediately go to Berkeley or North Texas State University or uh, the University of Miami because those were the colleges known for their um, contemporary music programs. Um, I, I didn't really, I, you know, I had a very nice life growing up at home and my band, you know, was still doing things on Long Island. So I didn't really care to go anywhere. Most kids can't wait to, you know, get as far away from home as they can. But I was, I was a very happy camper. You know, my bands always rehearsed at my house. My parents loved hearing the house shake to the core uh, with what was going on downstairs. And so um, it was when I was completing my second year at Nassau Community College on Long Island that one of the teachers who I looked up to, asked me if I was planning on completing my four-year undergraduate degree, and if so, where was I thinking of going? And uh, when I said to him, I don't really know where to go, he was the one that steered me towards the University of Miami because he went there, and he said they have an incredible music program. So I said, okay. And so the next thing I knew, in my third year, there I was down in Miami, Florida, uh, enrolled uh, in the music school at uh, the university. And um, when I went down there, I had always dabbled on piano. And, um, you know, when I started studying with Howie Mann back when I was like 12 years old, um, and he was turning me on to the big band music, I was eventually drawn into the more bebop side of things in jazz and then um a music teacher in high school one day gave me the miles davis bitches brew album and that kind of started opening me up to the world of fusion and so um while i was getting into all of that i was so in awe uh of the piano playing and i just thought in jazz you know, when you go to the solo sections, it's sort of a free-for-all, and it's every man and woman for themselves. Just hit any notes, and as, as, as it gets more dissonant, that's even cooler. I had no idea that most music uh, was based on progressions. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I was thinking, you know what? I might rather be a piano player than a drummer. And um, they allowed me to take a lot of keyboard-oriented classes, at the University of Miami, and so I was in an improv class, an introduction to improvisation, playing piano. And I was one of maybe three or four pianists, um, and there were a lot of guitarists, maybe 10 or 15 of them, and they all played hollow-body Gibson guitars with all the treble off, except for one guy who played this beat-up Telecaster solid-body Fender guitar with... Um, with a Stratocaster neck and Gibson frets, and and he didn't sound at all like any of the other guys. He had his own unique sound, and the teacher was always yelling at him because he didn't sound like a bebop guitarist. <laughs> that was Steve Morse. Of course it and, was. <laughs> and so um, yeah, I was admiring him. I didn't know him, but one day he came up to me and he said, hey, 
I know you as a drummer, but somebody told me you play the drums. Can you fill in for my drummer who hurt himself surfing? Um, and he, he can't play right now. We need a drummer. So I said, sure. And then I went to the rehearsal, and there they were doing, you know, Steve Moore songs that um, sounded like mel melodic versions of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which at the time was my favorite band. And they were also doing Mahavishnu Orchestra cover songs. So um, I thought I had died and gone to heaven, you know, when I walked into that room and started playing with those guys. So, you know, that was the Dixie Dregs. And um, one thing led to another. I ended up becoming the drummer. And, um, uh, you know, a year and a half later, when some of us graduated and some of us didn't, we decided, you know, all for one, one for all, let's go for it and try to make it with what we thought was this, you know, music that everyone in the world would love as much as they would love the Beatles or the Stones, you know, not realizing, guys, <laughs> you know, you're these young altruistic musicians that have no clue as to reality and what most people uh, are interested in when they listen to music. You don't have a singer. You can't dance to your music. You weave in and out of different time signatures and feels. This is more esoteric, uh, more on the esoteric side of things than the kind of music that makes people tap their feet and want to dance. You know, disco was big at the time. It was the mid-70s. And we said, yeah, whatever, whatever. You don't know anything. We're bringing our music to the people. And so, um, so began, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a band of, of great musicians, but it's a musician's band. You know, I mean, I think when I talk to other musicians about the dregs, they're like, oh my God, it's one of, you know, I, I love the dregs. It's one of my, you know, but to your point, it wasn't something that was going to get a ton of top 40 or, or at that time, what we called AOR, you know, radio, you know, album oriented rock. It wasn't going to get a lot of airplay yeah, or, or record deal. <laughs> well, which I, you know, I think this is a really cool story and I've heard this before, but you know, you guys were playing, you know, I'm in central Kentucky. I'm not terribly far from Nashville, but you guys were kind of on that Southeastern circuit. Yes. And, you know, you guys were doing a gig at, I believe it was the Exit Inn in Nashville. Yes. And there is a connection to the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, so why don't you tell our listeners how that all worked out? Because it's just such a cool story. You know, it was a, it was a typical night as most any other night was where, you know, you've driven all day from the last town that you played um, and you pull up to the venue and you spend the next two hours or so unloading all your gear <laughs> and trudging, you know, trudging through the street into the club up onto the stage and trying to get it all set up so you could then do a sound check and then play another gig after which back then, uh, you know, quite often a club uh, would pay a band $100 to play, which, you know, we were all moaning and complaining about back then. But, you know, through the years of teaching at Berkeley, uh, I've heard horror story after horror story from students where, you know, their eyes pop out of their head and they go, oh, my God, if anybody would pay us 100 bucks, that would be like winning the lottery. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Exit Inn is still paying 100 bucks for a gig. I mean, I'm... <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so, uh, you know, so, um, so we started doing our set, um, and, you know, one of the guys in the band noticed that a famous person was sitting at the bar chugging a beer, and uh, so the band had a powwow, and it's like, hey, guys, kick it into high gear, um, you know. So and so, it's here. So so it turned out that uh, the Allman Brothers, who you know in the '70s were one of the biggest bands in America, uh, they were out on tour and had a night off in Nashville, and so Chuck Lavelle, who was their 
uh, keyboardist, piano player. Um, he and Twigs Linden, who was their production manager, stage manager, just thought they'd go out to see some local country music so in cool. Nashville and have a beer. And uh, instead, you know, the Dixie Dregs were playing, <laughs> and Chuck Lavelle is a very serious musician. And uh, after our set, you know, he came over to us really excited and wanting to know where he can buy our records, to which we replied, we're trying to get a record deal. We can't get arrested, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And uh, to his credit, really, uh, you know, and keeping his word, he said, oh, you're getting a record deal. First thing tomorrow morning, I'm calling Phil Walden, who was the president of Capricorn Records, which you know, was the big Southern yeah. record label that had the Allman Brothers, Marshall Tucker Band, Wet Willie. Um, and um, not that long after, uh, a, uh, a gig was set up for us to play in Macon, Georgia, which was the home of Capricorn Records. And uh, Chuck, you know, made sure that the president and his vice presidents and everybody at the label came out to this club to see the band that he was raving about. And uh, Chuck sat in with us at the end, and we played Jessica, you know, where his famous sure. piano solo comes from. And uh, that's how it all started. That's you know, so, so cool. Um, uh, you know, the, it's a conversation that I have uh, certainly with so many of my students, but just a conversation that I have with musicians who... You know, young young musicians like myself way back when, um, you know, they struggle so hard to try to make it in music and get some kind of career going. And it's, it's such an elusive business. And, uh, you know, so I've been asked throughout the years, what do I do? How do I make it happen? How do you grab the attention of um someone who can open a door for you and really uh, you know the only thing you can tell someone is um first of all luck favors the prepared so that means you don't know when you might have a lucky break uh present itself to you and so at any moment be at the top of your game you know don't be someone who only practices on Sunday, and then you don't practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then all of a sudden on Saturday, you can sit in at some open mic night, and somebody who could change your life happens to be there, but you haven't hit your drums or played your instrument for an entire week. So, so it's important to be practicing on a regular basis so that at any point in time, you feel comfortable sitting down on your instrument and playing for whoever. But then the other thing is uh, you can't just sit home waiting for an email or waiting for your phone to ring with somebody calling you to change your life. You have to let the world know that you're out there. And the only way to do that is wherever you live to make sure that you sit in whenever there are jam sessions. Every town has an open mic night. Yeah. People have to hear you play, and and you have to mingle uh, with anyone and everyone. And uh, it's not to say that, uh, you know, the first time or the tenth time or the hundredth time, something really good is going to happen. Uh, at the end of the day, the whole thing is a crapshoot. We don't walk in a door with a resume to show to someone to get a gig. It, it really doesn't work that way. It becomes a word of mouth thing. People start hearing about, you know, this person who's a great musician and seems like a really nice person. And one thing hopefully eventually leads to another. And so in my case, I decided to go to a community college for the first two years and had a mentor teacher who steered me towards the University of Miami. And I happened to be in an improv class playing piano where Steve Morse was. 
and his drummer had a broken arm or, or whatever it was. So, <laughs> you know, um, somebody needs to write a book and interview a hundred musicians that have careers in music so that they can each in, in a few words tell their story, their, their individually, individual unique story of how they went from their bedroom to being a working, successful, well-known musician. Because I think it would be fascinating. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I think as the generations change, you know, I mean, you're, you're teaching at Berkeley now. And, you know, I'm sure you have students that are, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old right now. And I think their approach is probably a lot different than yours was, you know, when, when you quote unquote made it, you know, now it's about getting the, the best video you can out on the internet or, or whatever, you know, I mean, it's so times change, but you're right. Everybody has that one kind of seminal moment in their life and you have to be prepared to take advantage of, of that moment when it happens. So I, yeah. I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you um, know, you guys did so many great records and, you know, I, I don't mean to jump around a lot, but you just kind of finished up a big run with the Dixie Dregs. Um, you know, you, you guys were out um, and, and I think you, you were playing the, the Freefall record pretty much cover to cover, right? Uh, well, not exactly. We did a lot of songs from it, probably uh, seven or eight out of the 11, which was a lot. Uh, the the thing that was so interesting with this whole thing was uh, there have been different um, versions of the Dixie Dregs um, for the past 40-plus years. I've been, Steve Morse has always been the guitarist. I've been the drummer since 1973 or four. Um, before me, Steve Morse and Andy West and uh, a couple of other guys in Augusta, Georgia, when they were in high school, I believe they had started uh, the Dixie Dregs. Um, but we hadn't done anything for the past... Um, like 11 years, and, and then I, I had started having a lot of conversations with uh, the band's manager, Frank Solomon, who I've been living with for the 20 years I've been teaching up in Boston. Um, he's also the manager of Dream Theater and um, Vinnie Moore um, and a couple of other people. Um, and, you know, and... We started thinking how cool it would be if there were a way to get the original lineup from the first commercially released album, Free Fall, from 1977. Um, most of us had not been in touch with the keyboard player, Steve Davidowski, from that album in years. Um, but somehow, you know, um, over the course of time, we were able to um, agree on a couple of days, uh, which at this point is now like a year and a half ago, that we all met at Steve Morse's home in Florida and jammed for a couple of days just to see what it felt like and what the camaraderie was like. And uh, after that went well, we decided, you know what, this could be really, really cool. So... So what we did in this past, um, really March and April, um, was just uh, traverse the country and play 36 shows with this original lineup that had not uh, been on stage together in this configuration since about 1977 or 78. Um, and it was unbelievable. It, it truly was magical. Um, and when word got out that we were putting this together, members of our road crew from back then started phoning up saying, you're not doing this without us either. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, I, you know, it's very interesting. 
having an entourage of people who are in their mid-60s and a keyboard player who is 75 uh, playing, you know, six shows a week, and then on the one day you're not doing a show, have like a 1,000 to 1,200-mile trek to get to the next city. (laughs) I'm still convalescing from it. You know, the tour ended three weeks ago. Um, It it was really a, a beautiful experience on so many levels for everybody um but you know traveling w- takes its toll sure it does you know the, the two hours that you're on stage those are the the wonderful moments but there's 22 other hours involved in getting to the next city uh, among other things you know and so um it 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 as you, as you get older, it, it can start to take a little out of you. Sure. But uh, as a musician, you know, the, the whole of you never totally grows up. So there's a, there's a child that's always in you. Yeah, for, um, for sure. Well, I yeah. mean, you've never not been busy. You know, I mean, I, I've followed your career, you know, for, for years and years. And, you know, you mentioned Dream Theater a minute ago that, that you guys kind of shared a manager um, with Dream Theater um, in the, the Dixie Dregs. And you put out some great records with Jordan Rudess, which, you know, who is now in Dream Theater, of course. And right. those were just some killer records i mean just kind of melt your brain good playing you know it's funny uh, that you're mentioning jordan because about two hours ago i just spoke with him because uh he was calling to see if if i could do some recording on his new solo record um so i'll probably be doing that sometime next month wow yeah so, that's awesome and uh, yeah, uh, some of the most fun playing that I've ever done was with Jordan uh, as a duo, you know, called the Rudis Morgenstein Project. Um, uh, you know, life gets more difficult as uh, as your lives take you in different directions. So Dream Theater has him very busy, um, but every few years we seem to be able to get together and do something, you know. Uh, so we did a handful of shows about four or five years ago, but now it'll be nice to be in a studio with him cutting drums to some of his wild and crazy music. I, um, I always uh, get a knot in my stomach, you know, awaiting the arrival of the MP- MP3s <laughs> to start racking my brain. Um, yeah. But, you know, because, you know, learning a Jordan Rudis song is like learning a hundred regular songs. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the guy, you know, I think he can only count to 13 or something. I <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's really good stuff. And, you know, that, that first record that you guys put out and, yeah. it, you know, I, I, I immediately ran out and grabbed that. And it was just, you know, so fantastic and, and just, you know, it just blew my mind. And I, I want to say that was like 98, 97, 98, somewhere. Yeah, you're right. It was. came out in the uh, fall of 97. Okay, yeah, and I mean it's just such such a good record. So kids, it's it's the Rudis Morgenstein project. Uh, go go find that CD. It's it's fantastic. Um, so Rod, let's transition a little bit if you don't mind, because I do want to talk about Winger. Um, because that's, you know, that's how I got exposed to your playing and, you know, you couldn't turn on MTV in 1988, you know, um, without seeing one of the videos and, you know, Kip, you know, uh, who kind of, you know, built that band. And as you said earlier, you were just kind of hired to, to do some drum tracks and, and there wasn't really a band yet, but right. Kip Winger, uh, you know, for those that don't know, played in Alice Cooper's band, you know, and and Alice Cooper does not have B players in his band. He always has the best players in his band, Um, you know, and and Kip spent some time with Alice Cooper. And then I guess he decided to kind of write some music and and put together that project. And it was a, a hugely successful project. Um, you know, in, in a great band and you guys put out several records. Now, 
in the effort of full disclosure, I lived in Memphis for a little while and got to know kind of on the periphery, John Roth, who was in the band in the later years of Winger. And that guy is just a crazy good guitarist. And of course, Reb Beach, just an incredible guitar player. Um, you know, I, so everybody in that band was just great players. But the knock on Winger was always that Kip was, you know, this pin up good looking guy. And I mean, he can't help the way he looks. Right. So, right. <laughs> I mean, so and I heard I've heard Kip say in interviews that, you know, Beavis and Butthead, that's the, the cartoon that was on MTV, you know, the 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 not so cool kid wore a winger t-shirt and he was like, you know, that didn't help us any. Yeah. Stuart. Yeah. Stuart. You're right. So, but winger was such a good band and in those first two records are still two of my favorite records from that era. So tell us a little bit about, you know, joining that band and going out on the road. I mean, you guys were, were out on the kiss tour. I, I mean, you guys did some huge shows during that era. Uh, yeah, it was an incredible, like, three, four-year run. Um, where would I begin with all of this? Uh, <laughs> first of all, um, yeah, with with the fall of the so-called hair bands, and for, for whatever reason, Winger being singled out to be the most ridiculed uh, via... Um, Beavis and Butthead with the Stewart character wearing a winger shirt and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, earlier this year, was it this year? I'm trying to even think what month is it. I'm trying to think if it was this year or last year. Um, Kip uh, was nominated for Best Classical Album. So that's, you know, for people who've made fun of him for whatever reason, you know, calling him the talentless hack and only because he's good looking. This is someone who is, is a classical music composer. I sat uh, in the San Francisco Opera House and watched the San Francisco Ballet dance to um, Kip Winger's ballet called Ghosts. And then I saw it also at Lincoln Center in New York. It's also been performed in the Paris Opera House. So like he's He's like a bona fide, serious classical musician. He's not you know, like a rock musician where they put strings to she's only 17. So, um, right. uh, you know, I've also sat in a concert hall where it's like an evening of, you know, Stravinsky, Tchaikovsky, and Winger. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's been, been embraced by the, the classical music world. So he, he's the real deal. And, um, you know, in the more recent albums that we've done, the, the three more recent albums, say, of the last 10 years, you can hear more serious elements of music in it. Um, you know, songs like She's Only 17 um, were songs of the times. The thing is, you know, when, uh, depending on the decade or the period of time that an artist is in, um, if they're sort of trying to make it or get their foot into the inner circle of the particular art that they're trying to get into, in our case, music, it is, um, you have to study the things that are breaking through. Sure. And then try to take elements from the things that are, are uh, making these records sell and use them when you're creating your own music as opposed to saying hey this is who i am here's my esoteric music take it or leave it and so um you know if if you insist on playing music that say is instrumental you can't tap your foot to it every measure is in a different time figure etc 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 i would say more power to you just understand that at the end of the day, um, the weirder your music, the smaller your audience, um, and don't play the victim and just take responsibility uh, for the decisions that you're making. Uh, look, we all can't help uh, 
being passionate about the things we're passionate about. But if your passions are strictly with a particular niche, very bizarre music, you just have to understand that barring a miracle, your audience uh, is probably going to be quite small. Sure. And as, as long as you're okay with that, that's great. But don't be mad at the world because you spent 15 hours a day for the last 10 years working on this very, you know, you know, select atonal, weird, dark music. Um, you know, that's, I don't know, whatever. So, so, you know, what Kip did uh, when he was with Alice Cooper and he had the dream of doing his own thing was he started writing music and uh, he was listening to the music of bands like Kiss and Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and Poison and uh, Cinderella. Not that he wanted to write songs that were exactly like that, but it was like, ooh, okay, let me use some of this stuff as a template, both music and lyrics, to, um, to maybe help me uh, concoct my own original music that might get a shot. Because, not that it sounds like any of those bands, but someone would listen to it and go, oh yeah, it, it, this is that kind of music. This is that kind of heavy metal music. And it worked. You know, I mean, that's a whole other story, but in the end, it worked, and Winger was one of the lucky bands that, that sold a few million albums um, and got to enjoy that whole um, late 80s, early 90s experience. Um, but a song like 17, when everything fell from grace, a song like that came back to haunt the band and Kip with people making fun of, ugh, the lyrics are so trite. You should be in jail singing about <laughs> the set. Like, like, come on, give me a break. The Beatles sang, well, she was just 17. Right. You know, yeah. you, know you, you could find examples all over the place. But, um, well, I, I mean, mean it, I, it, it, it was a period of time where there were certain things that were written a certain way um, to try to help bands get on the map and be seen and heard. Well, at the end of the day, Winger was on Atlantic Records. You know, this is the label of Led Zeppelin, of Aretha Franklin. <laughs> you know, I mean, so so come on. And, and you know, I think, I think the first uh, two or maybe even three records were produced uh, by Bo Hill. Is that right? First two. First two. Okay. I mean, this is not a guy that, that, produces bad bands. You know I mean? yeah, yeah. But Bo Hill doesn't, you know, get involved in, in, you know, not good projects. Um, you know, so I, you know, I think it's kind of unfair and, and I hate it when people say, Oh, well, they were just a hair band. You know I mean? I, I just, I, I really, you know, I use the term too, but I don't like it. It was 1980s hard rock slash heavy metal, you know? And, you know, songs on that first record, like uh, Headed for a Heartbreak, it's one of the best ballads, in my opinion, of that era. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Plus, yeah. that was another one of those songs, and certainly in the live show, I get to just go crazy at the end, doing whatever I want in more of a fusion format. And, and it was so different than what everybody else was doing, you know, the, the tried and true common time, you know, and, and let the guitar player, you know, solo out or whatever, you know, now, right. you know, Reb, obviously a fantastic guitarist, you know, he's soloing out of that song, but so are you, which is, you know, I mean, really, really cool. It was different than the other bands of the time. Right, right. You know, just, yeah. just really yeah. good stuff. Well, you know, I, so I appreciate you talking so candidly about Winger because, you know, again, that was my first exposure to your playing. But I, I want to segue a little bit, um, you know, before we run out of time, you've spent the last, uh, you know, I'm going to say 20 plus years, you are now teaching at, at Berkeley, um, correct? I've taught exactly 
20 years, and I actually just recently gave notice that I'm retiring. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, I, that's too bad. <laughs> um, but, but to kind of just finish that thought, about eight years ago, uh, I created um, a, a course for their online division uh, called Rock Drums, which I believe is the first, uh, you know, three-credit um, course in rock drumming uh, created. So um, I'm very proud of that. And I continue to, de- to teach that. Uh, the online courses run 12 weeks, four times a year. And, um, you know, for the most part, students are on their own to kind of uh, follow along with all the material throughout the week. And then uh, once a week, there's a one hour hang session called a live chat. And then they have to um, download music that they play along with and then submit the videos to the teacher. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I watch that and critique it. Uh, and they have to answer, just answer discussion questions. It's a very unique format. And for, for people who don't have the ability to come to Boston to study at the college, it's, uh, it's another way to be part of the Berkeley experience. Well, I mean, it goes without saying, and, and you know, my listeners are certainly gonna gonna know. Uh, you know, we've had a couple of Berkeley alums on the show. You know, we had Nate Morton on the show previously. We had Johnny Rab on the show previously. Um, it, it goes without saying. I mean, it's just a who's who in, in drumming that that have attended Berkeley. You know, so. I think it speaks to your level of playing that you've been teaching there for 20 years. Um, you, I, you know, so, I mean, that's, that's a compliment that I'll give to you. Uh, you know, certainly you got to be at the top of your game to be able to go in and be a professor at Berkeley college of music the, without a question. It's been an incredible experience. Uh, teaching is a very gratifying profession you know, when you, when you have students, and they, you know they don't have to all be monster players. It, the gratification comes when you kind of see the student seeing the light of what you're talking about, and and hopefully um, imparting to them. And then when you see it coming out in their playing, it's an amazing feeling. But through the years, I've had quite a few uh, immensely talented musicians. Well, yeah. I mean, that's where they gather, you know, is Berkeley. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, Dream Theater, most of them met at Berkeley. You know, those kinds of environments are fantastic for, um, you know, inspiring the the creation of tomorrow's bands. Well, for sure. And, and, you know, when we had Johnny Rabb on the show, you know, he, he, you know, Johnny's a California guy. He was all the way across the country. And he said... The reason I stayed was Abe Laborio Jr. You know, <laughs> he was like, mm. you know, Abe, I think, was a senior when he was a freshman at Berkeley. And, you know, Abe went on, you know, he's playing with Paul McCartney now. That's not right. a bad gig for a drummer to land, I would say. Pretty not bad. Hey, Johnny <laughs> Rabb is amazing. Some years ago, I did a clinic, a drum clinic with him upstate New York, and uh, I was floored by his technical abilities. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think it just it goes without saying if if you go to to a school like Berkeley and, I, you know, I don't mean to, to bang the drum, pun intended for Berkeley, but, you know, I, I wish I could have gone there. It just wasn't in the cards for me. But if you attend a school like that and, and get anything out of it and continue practicing your craft, you can't help but be a better musician. I mean, I that's my opinion anyway. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, so, um, well, Rod, a, a, as we get ready to wrap up our interview, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, one of the traditions that we have here on the Drum Shuffle is we always ask all of our guests to share a good piece of advice for, you know, other drummers, other musicians, and it can really be anything you want. You've had just a you know, a legendary career that continues going. Um, you know, you, you announced on our show today that you're about to start recording with Jordan, which I think is so cool <laughs> that, that we got the scoop on that. 
<laughs> this will be a Jordan Road Rudis solo album. Okay, well that's I mean that's fantastic that we got the scoop on that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I feel I feel special. Um, but you know, share some of the knowledge that you've picked up over your you know forty year career, um, forty plus year career with our listeners. Well, let's see. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate to play with uh, so many uh, amazing musicians. Uh, One of the highlights for me has been having the opportunity to play with some of the people that were my idols uh, before I ended up being a full-time player. I remember going to see Alfonso Johnson playing bass with Weather Report, and then also saw him playing with the George Duke, Billy Cobham band. And I remember being in the audience saying, wow, what would it be like to play in a band with that guy? And then, you know, I fast forward 30 years, and there I was playing in the group Jazz is Dead uh, with Alfonso Johnson, having replaced Billy Cobham, who had left the band. Yeah. And, um, and then in the Dixie Dregs, having... Um, Jerry Goodman, who was the violinist with the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which was the band that really, I would say, turned my world upside down more than any other band on the map. Uh, And then to have him join the Dixie Dregs uh, in the early 90s and play with us, uh, you know, for 20-some-odd years. Uh, In terms of, like, highlights for me... um, those two things stand out. But, you know, as far as uh, talking to aspiring musicians, you know, I would say I became a musician really because I had no choice. You know, uh, like like I said earlier, it started with, you know, the family sitting around the TV watching the Beatles on television and just being hit so powerfully uh, by the Beatles and their music and having that moment define what was going to become the rest of my life. It wasn't like I had a choice in the matters, what I'm saying. Like, I knew what I had to do. Sure. I have to be a musician. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it entails. Um, uh, for most of us, it probably means you're going to go through the school of hard knocks, um, because there there are no guarantees in it. Um, but for the many musicians who do eventually see the light and break through and begin to have uh, some luck and, and have a career get started, uh, it feels so, so sweet, you know, to know that um, um, you're doing this thing uh, that you've felt so strongly for so long. And so, um, you know, to anyone um, who is at the beginning of, uh, of a career in music, I would say you have to give it a shot. You don't want to look back on your life and go, coulda, shoulda, woulda. And, and this is exactly like what my parents said to me when they, when they saw, you know, how uh, important it was to me. They said, look, you know, you have your four-year degree go out, go for it, give it however long you you need to do it, whether it's a year or five or 10 or 20, and hopefully something nice will happen. If it doesn't, okay, well, you know, at least in my particular case, it was like I had a four-year degree that I could go back to school, get a degree, a master's degree in education, and teach music. And even, even though I never did that, and continue to be a recording and touring musician uh, just through these, you know, interesting turns of events. I ended up being a, a, a teacher at Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. You know, so you don't really know where your journey will take you. And um, um, it's just fun to leave yourself open to all of the different possibilities that can happen. And if you keep a, a, a positive attitude about it, I would say, you know, there's pretty decent chance that some interesting, fun, good things will happen.
Absolutely. Well, and you know, I mean, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about watching you play uh, and, and listening to you play is when you're behind the drums, you're always smiling. I've, I've never seen you <laughs> look like you're not having a great time as you play. Um, and that was always something that, you know, that I took to heart that, you know, this, this should be fun. Right. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know if that's the way you approach it. I think it is. Um, but that's something that I always noticed about you is you always looked like you were just having the time of your life when you were playing. I've been told that I make some really crazy faces. And obviously, I've seen videos, you know, when you're playing, you're not aware of the things that you're doing, the expressions that you're making. Um, but yeah, I would say most every moment that I'm hitting the drums is a very enjoyable, pleasurable experience. Now, that's not to say it doesn't come with its frustrations where, you know, uh, um, you wish maybe you practiced a little more so that this particular thing on this particular day wouldn't be so uh, difficult to perform. Um, you know, I get, being a creative person or in a creative art, um, you know, it just sort of comes with the turf that you're going to be hard on yourself at times and uh, think that you could do. So, I, you know, so I'm always challenging myself to try to inch things along sure. to, the, to the next level. But, yeah, for the most part, it, it's always an immensely enjoyable experience. Absolutely. Well, Rod, thank you so much. We really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. You're, you're welcome on this show at any time. I'm going to bore you for 30 seconds with just a personal story. Um, sure. <laughs> I, I have to get this out. Um, one of my best friends in the world, a fellow by the name of Dwayne Edwards, um, came to see you guys winger, uh, went to see you guys in like, uh, you know, I want to say it was like 1989, 90, kind of a smaller uh, theater type show up in Cincinnati, kind of close to where we are here. Um, I was not old enough to go to the show and he actually met you after the show. And one of the things that he did was he brought back your autograph to me. <laughs> so it was one of those weird moments where he was like, Hey man, could you sign this to Jamie? And I just wanted you to know, I still have that. And it's, wow. one of, it is one of my most cherished, uh, possession possessions. It really is. Um, because you were just always such, uh, you know, uh, a, a, you know, one of my idols, you know, growing up. So this interview really means a lot to me and I appreciate you taking the time to come on our show and, and, and share your knowledge with everybody for an hour tonight. Oh, it's uh, been my pleasure. Well, you sound like you sound like a great guy. Hey, by the way, Winger actually has two shows this wing, this uh, weekend, one in Madison, Wisconsin, and another one outside of Dallas. Um, you know, I've been in this fusion Dixie Dregs mode <laughs> since the middle of February when I came home from one of these, uh, what are they called? The rock and roll cruises Yeah. that we did at uh, Monsters of Rock Cruise. Yeah. Um, so Winger did that in the middle of February. Then I came home and a couple of days later was on a plane down to Florida to start rehearsals for the Dixie Dregs thing. So, uh, yeah, on uh, fr Friday, I fly out to play on Saturday and Sunday. So you're going you're gonna to switch gears again and go wear the Winger hat, right? <laughs> wear the Winger hat, and then when I come home, start learning Jordan Rudis music. Well, uh, you know... <laughs> I think that speaks volumes about you as a player and you as a human being, Rod. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, it's crazy. Well, you know, the thing is, like, the way I've always approached uh, these things is to try to be true to the music that I'm playing. So, so when I'm playing with Winger, I'm hitting the drums really hard, and I don't want to be perceived as, like, a jazz fusion drummer playing in a rock band. Uh, I mean, I want people to hear things where they go, whoa, I've never heard a rock drummer do that. But in terms of just the overall, you know, hard-hitting intensity, you know, I'm doing my best to pull that off. Sure. You know, and then in the next breath, when I'm doing working with the Jordan thing, 
you know, it's it's going to be a whole other uh, set of um, elements that are involved trying to, you know, play um, his music, which is filled with endless twos and threes. You know, the one to one to one to three, one to three, one to three, one to one to one to one to one to three, one to three, one to three, one to one to three, one to three. Yeah, for sure. A lot of memory, a lot of memory. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, you said it best, you know, when you started, the versatility is key. And you're one of the most versatile drummers out there that I know of. So, you know, we look forward to hearing all of that stuff as it comes out. So keep us posted. And again, you're welcome on this show anytime, Rod. Thank you so much, Jamie. Hey, thank you so much. We'll talk to you real soon. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, guys, that's going to do it for episode 18. Again, the 13-year-old Jamie Eads uh, can can die in peace now. <laughs> I got to do my interview with Rod Morgenstein, one of my all-time favorite musicians. Uh, it was just an honor to have him on this show this week. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button to whatever platform you're using to listen in today. We've got some great guests coming up that you are absolutely not going to want to miss. Uh, Next week, we are going to have the wonderful Mike Fraser joining us. Uh, Mike is not a drummer. However, Mike was the engineer and mixing engineer on quite possibly some of the best drum albums ever. Uh, we're really excited to have Mike coming on next week. So you're, you're not going to want to miss that. So hit that subscribe button. Keep your emails coming to us. We love hearing from you uh, throughout the week. Uh, the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com is our email address. The drum shuffle.com is the website. You can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. None of this is possible without every one of you guys. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. 